2: Welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J.
1: This is your neighborhood-friendly infectious disease doctor and researcher, Dr. Santosh.
2: Now, you may have noticed we weren't around last week.
1: Oh, I'm sorry, guys. We didn't even, like, announce a hiatus or anything. We just ditched all.
2: just because. Stuff was going on. There is no explanation. You're just gonna have to wonder what we were up to. Josh was on Maybe a road Maybe I was planning stuff for next season. You don't know.
1: Josh was on a road trip.
2: Fine. <laughs> Chuck the producer under the bus, which he drove cross country.
1: You didn't drive a bus cross country. You drove a. It was um, Honda. It was substantially. I can sense a resistance
2: a building up in the audience to continuing to listen, which is good, only because we missed one of our yeah. alternate week episodes, which, as we know, is everybody's favorite. Journal club! Yay! Yay! Uh, called away on last-minute errands. Well, I believe <laughs> for those of you who follow us for politics and not medicine, ha ha ha. Um, there was yeah. <laughs> there was the release of the Mueller report, and then loud cries! Oh yeah! Tears! Loud cries from the resistance, yeah. and that got me thinking. We haven't talked about resistance in a while. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Big topic. One of my favorites is an infectious disease. So this doctor. week yeah.
2: every yeah. bit of journal club is gonna be dedicated to the resistance. Fight the power of infection.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, some of this is are, are we are we fighting the bacterial power or are the bacteria fighting? Our attempts to kill.
2: There's going to be a lot of fighting, and unless you'd like to be involved with it, let's get started with our first story. Now, if I've learned anything from GI Joe, it's that knowing is half the battle.
1: That's true. I, in, I mean, in my game, knowing is most of the battle. Uh, if you know the name of the bacteria and what is, you know, susceptible to, I can just—that's it. I win.
2: So what you're saying is, when it's bacteria season, we should be very, very quiet. Well,
1: that was like an Asian R to an L, along with the Elmer Fudd. <laughs> oh, bacteria.
2: Be very, very quiet. I'm hunting bacteria. But bacteria are very, very wily. I can't, I can't do that. It's too hard.
1: <laughs> it is. Uh, they, they, can, they can hear you coming. And I often advise, like if I'm, I've got my residents and everything and we're like, guys, we're hunting down this bacteria. I, I advise them to keep their voices down while we're hunting the bacteria so they don't hear us sneaking
2: So if only we had some way to trap. Yeah, uh, you're
1: talking about other than just like the usual put them on a, you know, agar plate or something and then grow them up, right?
2: No, don't serve the bacteria (laughs) dinner. Well,
1: you need them to grow in order to kill them, unfortunately. But yeah, why? What are you talking about?
2: I'm talking about individually hunting, trapping, (laughs) and killing bacteria. You know, to send a warning to the others. (laughs)
1: You're okay. This is a little weird, but go ahead. You you lead us in. So
2: when scientists want to see how a certain strain of bacteria will react to a drug, they'll flood a plate with different levels of the drug, you know, put a little dash here, a little dab there and see who finishes their plate. For the most part, it's effective, but this has its own limitations. So individual bacteria behave differently from one another. You can't make broad generalizations, you bacterialist. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: so what you're trying to do is you're trying to grow something called a clonal population, right? So you, you streak out bacteria onto a plate, and you get these individual little things. You call them colonies. And then you grow from that colony. You grow up a bunch of bacteria. Technically, they have very little genetic variation, so they're clones. They're essentially clones. You take that— you turn it into a lawn of bacteria on an agar plate. And if they're inhibited by the antibiotic that's on there, you can either drop a tablet or you can put a strip, then you know that that antibiotic inhibits the bacteria. You create certain cutoffs and say, oh, if you have, you know, this much antibiotic floating around, then there'll be this much inhibited and that, etc., cetera, et cetera. And If the concentration is right, meaning that you can achieve those concentrations in the bloodstream, then you tell your clinician, oh, well, this bacteria is susceptible to this antibiotic, and then the clinician gives it to the patient, and the patient lives.
2: Now, in a hospital, the way this works is you come in with an illness, we take a sample of wherever that illness is Mm -hmm. coming from, throw it on a plate and wait about 24, 48 hours for the scientists to run the microwave. Mm-hmm. Then they come back and tell us, here is the bug, and we adjust the antibiotics. But 24 to 48 hours could be a really long time for some infections. I can hear Santosh preparing a plate <laughs> in the background.
1: It is, although this is a plate of tortellini.
2: This new method that a bunch of scientists have discovered in the University of New York help to trap individual bacteria and test multiple features at once, which means the team can look at hundreds of individual bacteria at the same time and therefore determine what kind of resistances and other unique features a disease has. So the effective drugs are those that mess up an organism's shape and ability to move.
1: This is a really cool concept, right? So... In the old method, you have to wait for the bacteria to first grow, and then in the presence or absence of a particular antibiotic, you see if that growth is inhibited, um, or if, it, if they can overcome the antibiotic and, and grow anyway, in which case they're resistant to the antibiotic. You need to have swarms and swarms of bacteria over an agar plate, so you can visualize this with your naked eye. But if you could scale this down to a few bacteria, which, you know, you can only really see with a a high power microscope, perform the same type of testing, you wouldn't need those bacteria to multiply for as long as they do, like a day or two days. You just need them to undergo a few replication cycles, and then you could test how they were killed by the bacteria by seeing if they still had motility meaning like if they could still move around if they were still replicating or if they were still surviving growing and thriving but in teeny tiny numbers so now you're just waiting for like bacteria to replicate a couple of times or or move around or something like that and now you can take your time scale way way down um but as you can imagine Josh the old methods you know are 30, 40, sometimes 50 years old, right? So we understand really well how to translate that in vitro susceptibility, meaning what you see on the plate, um, to in vivo, meaning in life, you know, what the antibiotic is going to do for the patient. These methods, these brand new methods, really had to be weighted, you know, to be validated in the laboratory setting before they can be translated to, you know. Well, they lives. did it by
2: going fishing. This team has created a bacteria trap that uses very narrow channels filled with fluids and made bacteria swim along their length, like tiny little infectious salmon. Then the channels each led <laughs> to a microscopic <laughs> trap only big enough for one or two bacteria. Once they were stuck in the traps we and put different drugs into each trap, Place the bacteria under a microscope to see how they fared. It puts the antibiotic on its skin or else it gets the hose again. Well,
1: on its cell membrane or cell wall in this case. But If this works,
2: it could change the turnaround time from 24 to 48 hours to narrow antibiotics to as few as 2 to 4. Imagine showing up same day and finding out here is the here's the infection you have, and here's the perfect antibiotic suited to it. Now, I know that's how most of the populace thinks medicine does work, but I assure you, in a hospital, shrinking the time I need to get answers (laughs) from two days to four hours is enough to make me do a little jig that you can't see.
1: And in cases where a person has overwhelming infection, like sepsis, um, tools like this are absolutely invaluable, but I'll tell you the other way, it's really cool, Josh. If I know that I can take you know either some pus from a wound or bacteria grown in a blood culture and go through this system and have an answer this quickly, that means that I can put the patient on the correct antibiotic that much faster. Um, and the appropriate antibiotic will, A, work to save the patient's life faster, but much more importantly, will expose that bacteria to less time to a broader spectrum antibiotic, or, or I should say the patient to a broader spectrum antibiotic, which, you know, they have their own side effect profile, but the biggest thing is that it, you know, it breeds resistance. When you're using broad spectrum antimicrobials, because you don't know exactly, you know where to narrow it down to shoot at. So this is really huge. There is one more hurdle that we have to overcome, meaning that you have to have enough bacteria from the source in order for it to grow and go into this instrument.
2: Take now bacteria, bacteria, bacteria take are not resistance. the only ones yeah, yeah. enjoying a wave of resistance these days. Don't forget about viruses. In fact. We've been locked in an ongoing struggle with one particular virus for years and years.
1: Probably, probably as long as there have been humans. And of course, we're talking about the the flu. flu Now,
2: fun fact before we get into the actual science. I think we've brought this up before, but the term influenza derives from the same root as influence. So if you are a social influencer, like on Instagram or something like that, and you go viral, uh, you are using the exact same meaning of the word as actual viruses, such as influenza. You just don't have quite the same reach. Hopefully.
1: (laughs) I hope not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, And the ability to you know, infect others as quickly. So yeah, that term influence or influenza, not only can it move rapidly from host to host, but uh, it's also highly contagious, contagious and and quite uh, virulent as well. So I, I do hope you social influencers and are not as the problem with influenza, as and influenza. as we've
2: learned, whenever we encourage everyone to get their flu shots, There are so many different strains of flu that our shot, whatever it is for the year, only covers the most common, which is why so many people can still get flus even when they do take the shot.
1: Right. So, you know, in recent years, especially because of genetic shift, genetic drift, Um, We have run into, A, the emergence of a brand new pandemic strain. You know, that's the H1N1 that is now part and partial of, of, of every flu shot that we give. Okay. But we also know that, you know, we're not able to confer as much protection as we used to be able to with our current flu shots. That doesn't mean it doesn't work. You know, if you get your flu shot you have a much less chance of having severe infection. You have a much reduced chance of, you know, actually getting symptomatic in the first place and thus passing it on to everybody around you. So it's still a wonderful, wonderful tool. But that, that efficacy, meaning like the number of people that we can protect from getting the flu, versus the number of people who get vaccinated but that number has been we going down the number in of people years.
2: resisting the flu well this week as i was uh, reading be it so but cool. this year in, released in the journal science a pharmaceutical company has developed a <laughs> new kind of drug that mimics the effect of antibodies that you can use against a wide range of flu viruses Imagine if instead of taking a flu shot each year, you could just take a conventional pill that would protect you against multiple kinds of flu. So the first thing we had oh, to do was test so, this on so animals. Nice. So mice that were mice were given 25 times a normal lethal dose of one flu virus because hey, why not? And they survived. And this yep. <laughs> was from a compound known only as scientists naming alert. JNJ4796. So, uh, when we're infected by Chinese, a virus, our immune curious? system defends us by producing antibodies that rely on recognizing the virus and creating a way to fight it. And those antibodies are proteins that bind to specific parts of the virus and prevent them from infecting cells. But it takes our bodies a really long time to create enough antibodies to do that, which is why we get sick and why. As production ramps up, most flus only tend to last 7 to 10 days. But here's the problem. Antibodies are really large proteins. It's like a forklift truck trying to clamp onto this tiny little section of like a human arm. So, yeah, if you cover it, you're great, but it's very easy to miss. And flu antibodies are usually specific to just a single strain, whatever you've been infected with. So an antibody treatment for the flu that makes people ill one year will be completely useless the next year. However, these scientists recently discovered antibodies that work against this wide variety of flu viruses because they bind to regions that seldom change. Uh, Previously, we've talked about junk DNA in humans. Viruses have something somewhat similar where there's very large unchanged parts that are not responsible for infection but are consistent across viruses. So by targeting, by making a pill that targets these, you identify multiple of the same family of viruses and attack them all at once.
1: I love it. So, you know, you you imagine the little, like the little buckyball, right? That's influenza and sticking out of there, allowing uh, the, the virus to kind of attach wherever it needs to, are these little spokes coming out, right? So these little spokes are the antigens that we go after, hemagglutinin and neuroaminidase, H and N. And that's how you type the flu virus, H and N. The tips, the very end of those spokes, the ones that actually attach to cells and allow the flu virus to enter the cell, that's what we make our yearly influenza vaccine against because those are the most exposed parts of the flu virus. And so, you know, you, you're trying to evoke an antibody response against the, the tips of those hemagglutinin and uroaminidase. But
2: now take a giant a, wrench and throw it right uh, in the center there. of the spokes.
1: But yeah, yeah, right there. So the actual, the stock of each of those things that, you know, not the, not the tip of it, but the stock of it. So that stock doesn't change from year to year because it's a structural component that holds those little h's and n's out there for the virus to grab onto all the cells so those don't change right so if you make a vaccine against that or you generate antibodies against that you can hopefully get protection year to year to year. which again imagine
2: the boss works at the top floor of the penthouse The architecture of the outside of the building changes year to year depending on what's in fashion. But you shut down the elevators and close off the stairs, nobody's getting to work. Now, these (laughs) antibodies are still hard to produce and have to be injected. So Maria van Dongen of the Janssen Pharma Company in the Netherlands set out to mimic this effect with a small molecule, which is that JNJ4796. Oh, it's very catchy. Because it's a small molecule, rather than a protein, it can be taken in (laughs) pill form. Why? Well, a protein is something like steak, fish, eggs, DNA, whereas molecules are assortments of compounds that are not necessarily broken down in the body, at least not until we want them to be. So that is what makes this so fascinating. And may have us reporting by the time of next year's flu episode that we now have a pill for the flu instead of the shot, although we'll still be encouraging you to take whatever it is every year.
1: It it is a sort of vaccine, right? Active immunization is where you give someone an antigen so that they produce their own antibodies. That's that's the vaccine we use nowadays, a little flu antigen on there. But Passive immunization is where you just give the antibodies. And yes, this is just a wonderful, wonderful way to gain protection.
2: Protection. Protection. So because this is an episode focused on resistance, (laughs) obviously we're going to be playing some old favorites. We've talked about the flu. We've talked about hospitals. You know what another disease we love talking about is? Malaria.
1: So Josh, I know this isn't part of uh, today's topic. Um, but my friends out there in the ID world, especially, but in the doctoring world, we have lost quinidine as a medication here in the United States. People don't want to make it anymore. And this was our mainstay for fighting malaria. So we have now changed Josh, uh, here in the United States to using artesenuate or artemisinin based therapy. As their our primary first line anti malarial, not because necessarily it's the better choice, although it's a, it's a good choice. So and we've we talked are,
2: briefly you know, about really some other creative options. solutions, such as just you know feeding the mosquitoes first. That way, they won't come bite us
1: like a diet pill.
2: Yeah. You know, just so we've make talked about body shaming mosquitoes, it, it putting so them on hungry. diets. We've talked about the clever camouflage employed by zebras to prevent insect bites but most of the time what we do traditionally to kill malaria is pesticide the daylights out of anywhere mosquitoes have shown up
1: <laughs> and you know this this isn't great right you know we're we're bombing you know the place with pesticides and you know we're losing other friends along the way like bees which we absolutely love. Not they to mention,
2: but over the last few years, mosquitoes have become increasingly resistant to the insecticides <laughs> at the same time as malaria has become resistant to the drugs used to treat it. As a result, progress okay. on you know reducing malaria, is which quite is a pretty alarming. big killer over a lot of the world, has plateaued. So Flaminia cataruchia at Harvard University, along with her team, thought to themselves, okay, well, we can't treat people with anti-malarial drugs and they hadn't come up with the bright idea of just starving or gluttonizing the mosquitoes so instead they said let's give the mosquitoes anti-malarial drugs maybe they don't have resistance in mosquito blood this
1: is kind of a weird the malaria parasite has to make its way from a host you know like an animal or a human into the mosquito it has to it has its own little life cycle in the malaria gut and then you know comes out to the mouth parts and then you know get into a new host when the mosquito next goes over to feed so there is a period of time where the mosquito is you know holding the malaria parasite in its in its intestines so to speak in its gut so if you want to attack,
2: but the you may be asking yourself, wilder, it's hard enough there. to get people, you know, why to not? be compliant with malaria drugs or any antibiotics for that matter. How are you going to make teeny tiny little pills for the mosquitoes to suck up? And then how sure. are you going to get them to go to a clinic?
1: Well, <laughs> well, actually, this is this is quite easy. You you lay down some you know surface that the mosquito wants to eat or drink. And it's a little morbid because it might be like pooled blood or someplace where they like to land like a shallow puddle of water. Lace whatever that environment is with your antimalarial. And because, you know, skin's kind of porous and they've got their little proboscis sticking out everywhere, the molecule, the compound, will just kind of get absorbed into the malaria mosquito and you know hopefully we'll still stay active.
2: It's when true. Researcher Kataruccia spikes the, the mosquito the punch like a frat go. boy at a college party. And she ended up suggesting using anti malarial drugs <laughs> that have kind yeah. of used up their resistance abilities in humans could then be added to the coating for mosquito nets and clothing. Meaning we don't absorb it through the skin, so we're fine. Mosquitoes will land on mosquito netting or whatnot. And immediately take up these drugs, which are still lethal, in the mosquito.
1: Yeah, right through their little... little, They don't have skin. We have moved on to uh, exploring
2: mosquito society. We are now giving them antibiotics. And we are giving them diets. And the next step will be to get them to carry <laughs> tiny little dog versions of mosquitoes around in their purses and become yep. influencers, and that's how we're going to destroy mosquito society, folks.
1: <laughs> oh God, <laughs> Kardashian <laughs> I don't even have and a mosquitoes. pun ready for that's that? So mean. Should have
2: Shame on me. So that covers our next <laughs> our next story. So we've talked about parasites, we've talked about viruses, but now let's combine the joys of genetic. <laughs> editing and engineering with the study of the microbiome and talk about how the next step in resistance is engineering specific bacteria that we could use to infect ourselves and mop up dangers in the gut. In this particular story, ammonia, one of we're talking, basically, this is a new kind of probiotic. And the reason I came across this study is one of my interests in research, along with palliative care, is liver disease. I see a lot of alcoholics. I see a lot of people with hepatitis. And I have always found just the GI system and the liver in general. Fascinating.
1: For Josh, putting the live back into liver.
2: And I delivered lots of people. We'd like them to keep uh, their liver, please. Thanks.
1: Yeah, that was awesome.
2: One of the issues you see in patients who have liver disease or cirrhosis from any cause is very often they have these flares of confusion. And a lot of that confusion is because a compound known as ammonia should be cleaned up by the liver, doesn't work as well. So it starts to build up in the body, causes a lot of confusion, and leads eventually to the person not taking care of themselves which can cause a whole host of other problems. Right now, the main way we keep ammonia down in people with liver disease is by giving them a special compound to make them poop multiple times a day so they can never build up quite enough ammonia to become so confused.
1: Yeah, um, so ammonia is a nitrogen contain, containing compound, right? So ammonia is absolutely wonderful because it allows the body to transport nitrogen around, and the goal is to get it out eventually out of the body. Large majority of it we pee out, right? But, and, and by the way, this is a, in, in us humans, by and large, this is a product of protein breakdown and turnover. So, You know, if you're having metabolic processes, you're turning over protein, you're going to shed some nitrogen, it gets trapped in ammonia particles, and you're supposed to get rid of it. But if you have or you're making more than you can get rid of because your liver, which is supposed to process ammonia, it's a byproduct to break it down and try to get it out, Um, then you're stuck with high levels of it, and it's toxic. It's quite toxic
2: toxic to the point that it can cause seizures, death, a whole bunch of bad things. But a lot of us do take probiotics to mixed effect. There's not really a ton of impressive studies out there that say they work, but there's also not a ton that say it's going to do any harm to you. So if it makes you happy, go nuts. In the Journal of Science Translational Medicine, and quick sidebar, Santosh, I think this is rapidly yeah. becoming one of my other favorite journals, right up there with the Journal of uh, Sex Medicine.
1: Uh, sexual, yeah, of course, mm-hmm.
2: yeah. <laughs> we get a lot of cool stuff out of science in translational medicine.
1: It is. It's one of these kind of frontier journals where you're taking the stuff from pure research, which is you know, more theoretical, not yet applied to human disease, but you're bringing it to the patient. So it, it makes a lot of sense that you'd love that because, hey, it's that's some of the best stuff.
2: Yeah, translating from one field to another so everybody gets to have fun. You're right. No mm-hmm. wonder I like it. So <laughs> here's what this group of scientists did in a biotech firm in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Yep. The manufacturer, Mm -hmm. SynLogic, has changed the genes of a bacterium that already lives in our gut. It's a special kind of E. coli, E. coli Nissle, which is actually already sold as a probiotic uh, in a different form. Oh, interesting. I didn't know about that. And it's sold as a probiotic in order to boost its uptake of ammonia. So the bacteria, this E. coli, to a much lesser extent takes ammonia and turns it into a compound called L-arginine, which is an amino acid that we need in our diet. Oh, neat. So, you know, daily doses of this bacteria could improve sur- have improved survival in mice genetically engineered to have higher levels of ammonia, right? So we gave these mice an ammonia disease. Then we gave them this bacteria that already does something to combat it, and we started increasing the levels on both ends, seeing... Are the mice getting better? Are they dying faster? And how do we tweak it? And when they found a tweak that they liked and they gave healthy humans these bacteria in a probiotic drink for two weeks, blood tests showed Uh the bacteria were working as intended and the genetic modifications were actually keeping ammonia levels much lower than they would be otherwise.
1: Right. Now, I'm
2: sure you're thinking to yourself, oh, sure, genetically engineering bacteria. No way that could possibly go wrong.
1: Yeah, people, uh, I think, appropriately get a bit scared of they that.
2: They should get scared of that. We've seen Jurassic Park. Those Even scientists did not now. take proper protective methods and look what happened. Or, you know, choose any zombie movie. Okay. That's fine, too. So
1: for that, That's another, yeah.
2: For safety yeah. reasons, this firm this biotech firm were also genetically changed at the same time. So they could not reproduce. So they introduced bacteria that were effectively neutered or spayed, spay and neuter your infections, people.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So bacteria reproduce by um, binary fission, right? So they, they actually, they kind of pinch off their cells and divide like that. But, uh in in this particular case you know it which is kind of weird because you have to grow some bacteria in order to you know get it you know so that there's enough of them to work with so how do they manage to pull that off i
2: want how do you grow a seedless watermelon santosh science
1: that, <laughs> well nope it's different right
2: exact see... <laughs> same concept did not exist, but you're right. So there isn't fission. (laughs) So two weeks after the trial ended, there was no more DNA from these genetically engineered microbes found in the volunteer's feces. Can you imagine that intern's job? I want you to dig through and look.
1: (laughs) So so basically they've, they've got an off switch on them and and a pretty hard like off switch. So if you know, you, you can grow the bacteria to how much ever you want, and then, you know, and to put them into the, uh, the human, you know, you punch the off switch, uh, and, and then that's it. You know, they don't grow anymore. They die off. So now you can't find the bacteria anymore. They're, they're all so
2: built into this design is effectively, this is a supplement style treatment. So it's not meant to combat an infection so much as a metabolic disorder. And by doing this in supplements, there's much less risk, meaning at somewhere in a lab, somebody has to create a bunch of these neutered bacteria, but then they can package it and freely distribute it. And you don't have to worry about, you know, the next zombie virus starting out of your yogurt drink. However, other groups are now taking this proven tactic, And engineering bacteria to make human immune system chemicals as a treatment for other gut-related disorders like Crohn's disease and maybe even one-day colon cancer. So the next step is a trial in people who actually have cirrhosis or liver disease. The first one was mice. They did great. The next one was just normal humans with no problems where they measured our natural ammonia levels and they did fine. Now it's time to Mm -hmm. take it to the people who are going to see the greatest benefit. And those are the ones with metabolic disorders that produce ammonia. And that study will happen later this year. And we'll probably bring it to you in a future journal club. Yay. Yay. (laughs) Now, of course, I'm going
1: to. It's kind of neat. Like, you know, we overcame, you know, resistance. Of the plasmodium in this episode, you know, and another thing. So we like used the bacteria, you know, to, to get over hyperammonemia. So it's, yeah, we're, we're kind of neat at using all these like weird tools. Yeah. And stuff. We've
2: sped up the time it takes us to identify bacteria. We found ways to combat viruses, parasites, and bacteria. That's a pretty impressive collection of infectious origins. Yeah. Now. Before we go on to the last study of the day, which is going to be a little bit more depressing, uh, pun intended. Yeah. You don't know it yet, but you'll laugh. Yeah. Um, I am going to put a quick plug for a recent game I have found online. It's a mobile game, and I'm super nerdy. Santosh, are you familiar with the game Plague by Endemic Creations?
1: Uh, you told me a little bit about it, but I haven't All right, you yet. So, oh, and we should yeah, say not a sponsor. Not a
2: sponsor. They don't even know I'm talking about them, and I wish they would give me money. But for <laughs> those of you who really do get off on this kind of infectious stuff that we talk about every so many weeks, this company has gone out and designed using actual real-world statistics and input from epidemiology epidemiological centers in the CDC – They give you the opportunity to design and create your own infection that you can use to infect the world. Infect or kill every human on the planet. So you learn geography, you learn epidemiology, you get to custom build your own virus or infectious cause. And they have a couple fun options like zombies, vampires, planet of the apes, and all of this for 99 cents for the base game. It really does make you think, oh, some diseases spread better in wet climates versus dry climates and cold versus hot. So it really gives you a hands-on approach to learning a lot of the things that Dr. Santosh and I deal with every single day. So for 99 cents, it's a good way to kill some time. Oh, yeah. But moving on to our final story of the resistance, this one is, as I said, a bit more depressing because there have been a number of studies coming out, and this particular one is about four months old, that show antidepressants may actually be causing or contributing to antibiotic resistance.
1: It was a little scary. It's not, by the way, entirely unexpected. Um, We know that there are antidepressants that have Antiviral activity. Um, there's a very thin in the literature. We, we have to understand that you know when we take a medication and the common paradigm of medicine today, you know, you put a substance into somebody to help treat them. That that molecule, that compound, whatever it is, doesn't just go to the place where you want to treat somebody, it goes everywhere in the body. Stuff that we mean to treat the brain can treat the liver or can mess with your bacteria. Your antibiotics can mess with your lungs or mess with your kidneys. So, yeah, these aren't like, you know, targeted lasers that, you know, you're just using to fix one little thing. We're doing the best we can with... Chemistry that we know.
2: first thing before I go into any of the rest of the science, I want to say if you are taking any kind of medication for any mental health issue, depression, anxiety, um, hallucinations, you know schizophrenia, any any kind of mental health issue, please keep taking it. You are perfectly normal there's nothing wrong with this. this is just something that we have to keep in mind when developing new drugs in the future, and there are a number of studies. Uh, you know, again, I, this particular one I pulled up talks about fluoxetine or Prozac, but sertraline has been shown mm-hmm. to have a increased E. coli resistance creation in poultry compared to other serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Uh, amoxipine lowers the antibiotic resistance of staph aureus, and even MOA inhibitors, which we barely even use anymore, can increase fungal infections. So really, it's a kind of you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And the good that most of these do in terms of treating mental health issues, far, far outweigh the small amount they are contributing to antibiotic resistance for infectious purposes. But we should still be aware they are contributing for infectious purposes. And a lot of these studies have said, at least with regards to sertraline and some of those other cycling drugs that it may work by inhibiting the way it creates antibiotic resistance is by inhibiting the efflux pumps that create concentration and this starts getting into a lot of biochem that's a little outside my field because i hear efflux pump and i think of a combination of an ion pump and a flux capacitor which i promise you sounds cool (laughs) not at all what an efflux pump does
1: No, no, no. Just keep it really, really simple, right? You you got the surface of the bacteria, okay? You've got a cell wall and then a cell membrane, and then embedded in that little cell wall in order to keep bad molecules out that the bacteria doesn't like are little tiny chemical pumps. And so you know, a molecule gets absorbed through the, the bilipid layer, the cell wall, in order to try to attack the bacteria's guts, right, the protein construction mechanism, you know, or it's, it's maybe it's you know folate synthesis pathway or something like that. and the, the little pumps actually work to to actually pump those molecules right back out the bacteria and out to the outside world so it you know those molecules can't hurt it
2: so think about it like you have an infection and ordinarily your body would be throwing all the stuff at the bacteria and it would break in and rough up the place and shake them down but if you are on one of these particular antidepressants there is a chance that one of them also gets into the bacteria and on its way through kind of leaves a door unlocked and now it's created an escape route. (sighs) So it's, it's a very minor effect. We still don't really understand it. A lot more study is needed, but it seems to be across the range of antidepressants, which is what makes it such an insidious finding.
1: I hate it, (laughs) but I also love it because I I think it, it kind of reveals to us the way that life Ah, oh, ah, oh, finds a way.
2: So Yay. that is it for this week's Journal Club. I managed to even keep us on theme and mostly on topic.
1: <laughs> I, I think it's because I really, do. really just want to go to sleep.
2: You folks at home may not realize this, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but my level of energy when recording is... Yeah is inversely proportional to how desperately I want to go to bed.
1: So when he wants to, like, really get some sleep, he he moves along. So
2: that means it has come to the portion of the episode where we provide you with a just the tip. I did disappear for a full week episode in order to go on a cross-country road trip. (laughs) I have now driven. We did go to Louisville where you can catch the Kentucky Derby or at least Churchill Downs where you can wander around and see the racetrack. They offer tours of the racetrack. They just started training, so we were able to see some of the horses doing their warm-ups in their little, you know, aerobic clothing. And this was news to me. Right in front of Churchill Downs, there is a giant sculpture of a jockey on a horse that is appropriate. You'd expect to see that horse racing. What you don't realize is there's a horse corpse buried underneath it.
1: um... First of all, you can't use the words "giant jockey." That's I mean, he's a tiny
2: little man immortalized um, in a statue. of all, what else would you call him?
1: Now, w- but what's going on with? Well, you got a, you got a dead Churchill horse?
2: Downs is the final resting place for 2006 Kentucky Derby winner Barbaro, uh, okay. who was euthanized in 2007 after a battle with. Laminitis, which is, I don't know, maybe a horse disease. Sure. So he's the only horse buried on the grounds of Churchill Downs, but the adjacent Kentucky Derby Museum has the remains of four extra horse corpses Sonny's Halo, winner of 1983, Carry Back, 1961, Swaps, 1955, and Broker's Tip,
1: 1933. Oh my God. <laughs> Can't believe you have all of those. You That's can get crazy. really
2: into horse racing in <laughs> Louisville, even if all you right, know nothing right. about it entering the state, which I didn't. Uh, it's also well, home yeah, to two other yeah. things worth checking out. <laughs> the world's largest bat and the world's largest bat. Now, I know it sounds like I repeated myself. Oh, the world's oh, largest no, no, baseball go, bat, go the yeah, I, I
1: know Louisville
2: Slugger, is at the Louisville Slugger Museum. It's a gigantic steel model of Babe Ruth's yeah. bat. Every baseball bat created for a specific player has their initials on the bottom or their first initial and then a number that is their bat length or size so i got to hold bats custom designed for greats such as jackie robinson babe ruth and other baseball players whose names i'd probably remember if i paid more attention to sports maybe a 10 minute drive (laughs) from the louisville slugger museum is the world's largest vampire bat, Yeah, also a sculpture, hanging upside down on the wall, staring longingly at all those delicious buried horses just a short drive away. So not, it is a fake bat, but the world's largest baseball bat and but vampire a, bat are both in the same oh, city.
1: I see. I'm, I was like, you know, I thought we would have like a vampire. Sure. We
2: also made brief stops along the way where I do not have the time to go into all of them and we'll... Sp- Base them out over the next several episodes, but there's one site I have to mention: Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. That's right. Imagine yeah. a little, you know, dwarf at a forge oh. creating a metal pigeon that has nothing to do with this town. But
1: oh, oh. Even no, no! Even I was better. imagining like the pigeon forging something, little hammer and its little little. Oh, and its beak. No, I was imagining it like wrapping the wing around the the handle. As we all prepare hammer,
2: for Endgame you know. and Game of Thrones, yeah. ooh, Avengers okay. Endgame Game of Thrones. I would watch that.
1: <laughs> I'm sh- the, some if you're the if you are the progenitor <laughs> of that joke, then good on you. So because that Pigeon that Pigeon is Forge, Tennessee,
2: it's a two-town tourist trap made up of Pigeon Forge and Gatlinburg, with Every kitschy, hokey thing you could ever hope to see, and I say that with the greatest of fondness. One of the few things I will mention in Pigeon Forge is Santosh, Are you familiar with the dining establishment Medieval Times?
1: Oh well, yeah, totally. You drink a bunch of beer with a crown on your head, and you watch people jousting. Probably like they have never you ever used thought to, to yourself? Do, but, you know, I enjoy watching stuff.
2: people fight in front of me for dinner. But I just can't buy into the whole medieval angle. Well, Pigeon Forge (laughs) is host to a dinner buffet and show based on the feud of the Hatfields and the McCoys. Hold on, wait. Are they shooting at each other
1: from across the stage? I don't know how you're supposed to enjoy your meal with all that going on.
2: (laughs) There's too much happening. You can (laughs) help the Hatfields and McCoys settle their differences mountain style.
1: Become part of the longest-running feud in history and help the Hatfields and McCoys try to settle their differences mountain style. Wow. Oh, you're
2: missing the no-telling-what's-in-it <laughs> coleslaw.
1: All right. Feudin' fried chicken, open pit pulled to pieces pork barbecue.
2: That's it. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you would like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, you can find links to do that in the show notes, along with all the sources we used While researching this show Give us a listen on Radio Public If you want to help us out It's an app that's free to download And we get paid for every listen somebody does It's almost a whole nickel Think how many road trips you could send me on Our theme music
1: Uh, We won't use it for road trips We'll probably, you know, buy equipment And, you know, keep the show running
2: You know, if I had a nickel For every time
1: Oh, God, you idiot (laughs) (laughs)
2: Uh, the show is produced by me with a lot of help from all of our co-hosts even when i harass them our theme music is composed by rachel leisure and until next time as always happy travels
1: bye